Welcome to St. Louis on the Air. I'm Don Marsh. Today we're going to discuss the adolescent brain. The brain is not fully developed in adolescence, and that can influence behavior, including criminal behavior. Should the justice system consider this when dealing with young criminals? We have experts with us to discuss this and other things. From Washington University, Deanna Barch is professor and chair of psychological and brain sciences. Annalise Schaefer is director of the Office of Neuroscience Research, executive director of the Hope Center for Neurological Disorders, and professor of neurology at the University School of Medicine. Susan Appleton is a WashU law professor, and joining us by phone is Elizabeth Scott. She is professor of law and vice dean for curriculum at Columbia University Law School in New York City. Thank you all so much for being with us. Great to have you. Thanks. Thank you. Annalise, let me begin with you. Can you give us kind of a brief overview on the development of the brain, the early development of the brain? Um, well, first, uh, I wanted to say thank you for the opportunity to be on the show today all of, for all of us and uh, have an opportunity to talk about this important question. Um, it's very hard to give a nutshell explanation of the development of the brain. For purposes of this show, um, it would be useful for people to think of it as a continuum that starts at the very earliest in utero uh, stages and the environmental effects and the the state of health of the mother is critical. And it continues, that maturation continues all the way uh, into our 20s. The brain then is only fully developed uh, somewhere in the the 20s. That's correct. Right, right. One of the things we want to talk about, aside from the criminal uh, elements that I mentioned earlier, Deanna, was the the stressors and the things that influence uh, the the brain and influence the the, the owners of the brain, if you will. Talk a little bit about that, uh, the effects that these poverty, things like that have on kids. I think we have a a really growing understanding that a host of environmental factors influence brain development in children. So that includes poverty and uh, neighborhood disadvantage, family disadvantage, um, stressors that children might experience being exposed to, to violence. I mean, I think it's easy for all of us to understand that very major things like abuse and neglect have a very critical impact on brain development. I think what's less appreciated is that, you know, the stressors that children experience growing up in impoverished environments um, where they may not have access to, you know, adequate nutrition, they may be exposed to toxins in the environment, those things have an impact as well. What is that impact? Well, it... um, it will change a number of aspects of brain development. I'll give you one example that's a very concrete one. So there's a part of our brain called the hippocampus that's very important for our ability to manage stress and to respond effectively to stress. And that's an area of the brain that we know both from animal research and human research is very strongly impacted by early adversity. Um, And it changes the hippocampus's ability to help us effectively respond and manage stress. The hippocampus is also important for memory and learning, so it has an impact then on kids' ability to to learn vocabulary, to do well in school, to manage their emotions and their stress through development. So that's just kind of one example of the way in which poverty or adversity might have a very specific effect on the developing brain. Elizabeth, let me turn to you with regard to the association with brain development and crime. We hear that uh, teenagers, for instance, are are more susceptible to taking risk and irrational behavior. Is that right? And can it be uh, a, a, contributing, a contributing factor to crime, criminal activity? 
Um, yes, that is right. And uh, there are several uh, characteristics of adolescence that are uh, associated with uh, with brain development that contribute to their getting involved in, in criminal activity, but also to uh, involvement in other kinds of risky activities like, you know, fast driving and drinking and unsafe sex. And uh, we've been uh, hearing a lot recently about about uh, adolescents being killed, uh, taking uh, selfies in in risky situations, and there just there are several uh, uh, factors that that contribute to this. Adolescents tend to be sensation seeking or thrill seeking. They have poor impulse control. They're less able than adults to regulate uh, strong emotions, and they're very sensitive to social context and particularly to peers. And scientists have have linked all of these traits, which in combination make adolescents very inclined to to take risks, to get involved in uh, in criminal activity and other other risky ventures. Have linked linked these traits to. Uh, to brain development and to the reality that the adolescent brain is not fully developed. Susan Appleton, is the justice system catching up to this uh, this knowledge? Partly, I would say. there um, There's a series of important U.S. Supreme Court cases in which the justices imposed constitu- or recognized constitutional limitations on criminal punishment for young offenders based on the fact that they deserved lesser punishment because they have immature brains, but also because their brains are still developing. And long-term or final punishments um, may not be warranted because they might, quote, grow out of the particular problem that um, caused the criminal activity. So that's that's a first step where we can see learning from neuroscience and law working together. Towards well, reform, the prosecutors would have to buy into this. I would, I would have to think. Well, given the way the Supreme Court imposed constitutional limits on punishment, I think the prosecutors don't have a lot of choice. I mean, mm. they can't. Um, the simple bottom line is that uh, juveniles cannot be um, cannot be punished for with life imprisonment terms or the death penalty or the like. But if a if if a uh, defense attorney were trying to use that as part of the defense, the fact that this brain was not fully developed, the prosecutor would object. Yes, but at at the end, and it may not um, change the fact of conviction, but it does change the term of punishment. What do you make of that, Elizabeth? Well, that um, that's uh, that's right, and uh, that. Um, the Supreme Court has has sort of led the way in recognizing that uh, that children are different, and it sort of it's announced that in these sentencing opinions that Susan is uh, is describing, and that leadership role of the Supreme Court has had has had a big influence beyond these uh, you know harsh punishments that the court was dealing with in in. Uh, those cases, which actually affect a pretty small number of uh, of juveniles, but legislature legislatures and courts have uh, have cited the Supreme Court opinions for uh, a, a range of reforms uh, 
that go beyond uh, the severity of uh, uh, of punishment, and in in the juvenile system, there has been a um, uh, a movement uh, that you might just describe as deinstitutionalization, uh, a recognition that placing juvenile offenders in uh, in large institutions is uh, is bad for their development and is also likely to contribute to recidivism. So lots of states have moved toward uh, uh, more treatment of juveniles in the community uh, and uh, and much less use of residential facilities. Interestingly, Missouri has been a leader uh, in this in this movement in one regard, uh, in that Missouri for uh, for quite a while has um, has placed juvenile offenders in in small facilities, those who need to be in residential facilities, in small facilities uh, near their homes, uh, and uh, and has had uh, good outcomes with. Uh, uh, with uh, with this reform, and other states have have adopted what's what's actually called the Missouri model in uh, in moving from big institutions to uh, to smaller facilities and community treatment. And at least, what uh, what is your thought about this? And are we moving in the right direction? Well, I think Elizabeth's example just now of this setting. So not necessarily whether we convict somebody or what their ultimate sentence is, but how they serve out that sentence is a great example of how we can think about these policies and how to better serve. So I think is if we can keep in mind the idea that, that brain development does not happen in isolation, it's really all about the environment and the caregivers, the actual physical contact, the actual what was called serve and return, the interaction between infants and the caregivers. If we keep those things in mind, then we can enhance brain development, but then also decrease recidivism, you know, hopefully decrease the uh, odds that these kids will offend again and end up back in these situations. So I think we're going in the right direction, um, but there certainly is always work to do. And this is one of the things we're working on is to um, have the uh, academics outside of neuroscience, but within Washington University, and then all those in the broader community to really have more communication, have more transparency about what we know about brain development, what we can know based on our current tools. Deanna, uh, we talked about stressors before. Mm-hmm. It would seem to me that if a, a youngster is put into solitary confinement, that um, that would be a pretty significant stressor. What would be going on uh, under these circumstances? Well, that's actually a great question. So we know that social input is critical to brain development. Again, we know this both from animal studies and from human studies. So if you deprive an adolescent of social inputs as they're developing, that's going to have an impact on their typical brain development, you know, both from a learning perspective, learning how to to engage in appropriate social interactions, but they're not going to have that sort of, you know, feedback that is critical for driving the way the brain wires itself up and connects different brain regions together. Um, I don't think we have data to know whether that's worse for someone in adolescence than adulthood, because it's probably pretty negative in adulthood as well. But since the brain is still developing and social input is so critical to those final stages of brain development that, that 
just cannot be having a good impact. Susan, Some I, I, states have, excuse me, I just, just uh, to note that in the last few years, some states have abolished the use of solitary confinement uh, with juveniles and, and pointing to the brain research that, that as, as much as that, um, that kind of punishment might be harmful uh, for, uh, for adults as well, there is at least a, a view that it's more harmful for juveniles because of, because of their uh, developmental immaturity. Susan, anything like that going on here? That you're aware of? Not that I am aware of. Um, what, what I think is most interesting about this conversation, though, is whether or not we can use as a model what we've seen happen in the juvenile justice context and ask whether some of these other findings about neuroscience might call for law or policy reform, whether more um, po- poverty interventions, for example, more interventions with pregnant women, um, whether or not um, other kinds of supports could stave off some of these problems. And although they'd be expensive at the outset, they'd be much less expensive in the long run than some of the social problems that result when we don't attend to such problems. Well, I better take a break already. Time is moving very quickly. We'll do that now. Come back and continue our conversation on the adolescent brain in just a moment. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio, 90.7 KWMU. Thank you for listening to this St. Louis on the Air podcast supported by University College at Washington University with undergraduate and graduate programs part-time evening and online. University College at Washington University, offering world-class education within reach. Now back to our conversation about the young brain. Deanna Barch, Susan Appleton, and Annalise Schaefer of Washington University are with me in the studio, and joining us by phone from New York and Columbia University is Elizabeth Scott. Uh, Come back to you, Annalise. Uh, you mentioned something during the break that I think we must uh, acknowledge, and that is we're talking about the juvenile brain and crime, teenagers, that sort of thing. But really, we have to be careful much before that, don't we? Right. And when we're thinking about policy and the term policy, we can think at very early stages, for example, in the education system. So if there is a child who has disciplinary issues, how is that child being uh, treated afterwards? Are they being um, penalized? Are they be, is recess being taken away? Are they being made to be in an isolated situation? Um, or is there some alternative? And I think based on what we understand now about brain development, there are trends towards changing how children are treated um, when they have behavioral issues. Well, Deanna, what about the role of the parent? What can the parent do to try to overcome some of these uh, negatives. Yeah, so there's um, lots of wonderful evidence about the role of positive caretaking. Um, I think if you have a child who already has disciplinary problems, you know, one of the biggest things we see is that being able to be regular and structured in parenting um, can really help with some of that. I mean, there's a, a lot of evidence about the role of positive caretaking directly influencing brain development. Um, and, you know, I think that also speaks to policy issues around what are we trying to do to keep, you know, parents and children together when there is some sort of problem, either with the parent or child, separating them 
actually could be having an impact on brain development in the child as well, speaking to policies that might influence that. Elizabeth, who and how can policies be changed? Who should be directing this, uh, this conversation? Should it be the, the uh, scientific community, the lawmakers? Who do we, who well, do we turn to? I think the um, lawmakers should be listening to, uh, to the scientific community. The uh, you know, lawmakers, legislatures, and courts, and, and regulators are the ones who are going to make the policies, but, but they need to be attentive to, uh, to the, uh, the information and the knowledge that we can learn from science. And one of the really um, heartening things that's been happening in juvenile justice uh, in the last decade or so is is that there has been a much greater willingness uh, to pay attention to science. Uh, it, there's an interesting contrast to the 1990s when, uh, when lawmakers had no interest or seemed to have no interest in, in any differences between adolescents and adults in, uh, in developing justice policies. And young offenders were called super predators, and, and um, uh, politicians argued for t- treating them like adults when they committed crimes. That's, that has changed dramatically over the last uh, decade or so. And I, I think that's very heartening, and a lot of the uh, credit for that goes to science and to the impact of uh, of developmental science on uh, on regulation and law. Susan, are you aware of any initiatives in the state of Missouri on the part of the scientific community to reach legislators? Legislators. Well, I think actually Annalise can probably speak to that because um, she's part of a, she's part of a new initiative on neuroscience and society that. Um, is originating at our medical school. Um, So that would be one place I would start. That's right. We're definitely trying to um, increase conversations. Um, And then I also would add uh, that Tim McBride Mm -hmm. in the Brown School of Social Work um, has a group that helps scientists translate their findings so that they are intelligible and accessible. Understandable, Uh, yeah. Yes, Mm -hmm. yes, to the legislature. And, And one other point that I would really like to add Yes, it's all well and good, and we are trying to improve the health of babies, but a lot of this also boils down to real dollars and cents. Mm-hmm. And so I think that's another reason um, for people to listen mm-hmm. to why we should make these changes, because there are real costs. There are real costs that are associated with the criminal justice system, with health, um, with education. I think, so I think the more people who listen, I think everyone will benefit. Mm-hmm. One of the... Um, reasons that um, that this movement has been so successful in juvenile justice is is that institutionalization is expensive and so the um, policies that that treat juveniles in the community are are not only more effective in reducing recidivism but they're uh, but they're less expensive than locking them up and I think that that is the challenge for applying this research uh, in other areas where it might be very beneficial is that it, it may require resources that we're not yet spending. And, and that, that's always, uh, always uh, uh, politically 
uh, a heavy lift. Yeah, that, that'll get your attention if you can save a buck or two here and there. And then on a more national level, I know that there are other initiatives. One of them, and Elizabeth can speak in more detail about it, is the American Law Institute's effort to restate um, the law of children and the law. And this is a multidisciplinary project. There's room for some of this data to creep into the efforts of um, the drafters, the reporters, and Elizabeth is the chief reporter on that to um, clarify and simplify the law. But I know um, much of the research, or some of the research, um, is, is not legal research. It's um, finding the influence um, of, of science and psychology. Take, take that, it away, that's Elizabeth. That's right, yeah. Well, that is, that is right. And the, the goal of our restatement, uh, as you know, other restatements, is to influence courts. And so we, uh, we are restating the law on different issues uh, that relate to both juvenile justice, children in schools, the parent-child relationship, and children in society uh, uh, in a way that is informed by developmental science. Uh, and so we're, our, our hope is that courts will be influenced uh, by the approach that the restatement uh, is taking, and that today we think there is a greater, greater openness to uh, to thinking about uh, about law in this area in uh, uh, in terms of of you know uh, what science can uh, uh, can tell us and and how it can inform policy. Deanna, I get it with regard to having the courts turn around a little bit, but going back to the politicians, politicians like to run law and order campaigns. It would seem to me that this is a very tough nut to crack. I mean, yeah, Uh, sorry. Yeah, it is a tough nut to crack, but I I think I would go back to the dollars and cents. If you think, I mean, we're used to thinking about cost effectiveness in many other domains, and I think we don't always think about cost effectiveness in this domain. That interventions early on that might promote healthy brain development, if you actually look at how much that saves you in the long run in things like institutionalization costs, healthcare costs, um, you know, uh, lost wage, you know, lost productivity, many analyses like that that have been done in the past show that you save so much money. Now it's future money, and that's always a challenge to get politicians to think about the future rather than current, but I, th- I think we have to be thinking in the long term in this way. Yeah. Elizabeth, you started to say something? Well, it, it is, uh, you know, politicians have been relatively um, receptive to reform in juvenile justice pretty much across the political spectrum. There, there clearly are sort of tough-on-crime uh, politicians, and, and um, often that's a, that's a very... Um, uh, you know, successful kind of uh, of approach, but um, you know, the what is interesting about the recent reforms is that uh, is that um, support for these reforms really does cross the political spectrum. The, the Koch brothers have uh, have been involved. There's an there's an organization called Right on Crime, which is conservatives that favor. Uh, cutting back on not not just for juveniles but also for adults, cutting back on uh, imprisonment, uh, and and that I, to uh, a large extent, uh, conservatives are motivated by uh, saving money, 
Uh, but uh, I think the challenge uh, in other areas of, uh, of law is to persuade politicians and the public that dollars invested in, uh, in younger children and in their development uh, will pay off and that those are cost-effective investments. Our, our time is winding down, but uh, let me ask this of you, Annalise. Is there any way to speed up brain development process so that it can be fully developed faster? We have two minutes left. I'm not aware of any way to speed it up, but I think that there certainly are ways, and we know of ways, to maximize the development, maximize the development of particular regions, um, maturing of the brain, of the brain maturing, um, and then also connecting with the appropriate other areas. Right. We have a minute and a half left, and I want to get a final thought. I'll start with you, Deanna. Where do we go from here? Well, I think we keep trying to look at ways in which science and results can inform policy. Uh, I actually heard a great segment, I think, on NPR yesterday about changes in the policy of allowing babies to stay with their mothers who are incarcerated. And that is, I think, if not directly informed, should be informed by science because we know how much of an impact maternal attachment has on brain development. So that's a great example of a place where a policy change could really positively impact the offspring of mothers. Very quickly, Annalise. Right. So Cynthia Rogers at Washington University has done studies where she's looked at babies having skin-to-skin contact with their mothers, and that has enhanced right. brain development. Right. Susan? I think the Supreme Court cases limiting juvenile punishment provide a good model, but I think what we're talking about in terms of intervening in early stressors is much more challenging because the Supreme Court doesn't order states or lawmakers to spend money, even when it's wise to do so. And in 30 seconds, uh, Elizabeth, final thought? Well, I think there is uh, there is still work to be done in, uh, in juvenile justice, and uh, uh, one of the fears is that that you know we'll we'll return to the bad old days of the 1990s, and and the hope is that this developmental science will keep us moving forward and uh, and um, adopting policies that are better for for adolescents, better for juveniles, I, but also better for society. I've got to leave it there. I want to thank you all so much for being with us. Uh, Deanna Barch, Susan Appleton, Annalise Schaefer, and Elizabeth Scott. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio, 90.7 KWMU.